As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games. I'm here with my good friend, Mark Bigney. How are you today, Mark? I'm very well, Walker. How are you? I am fantastic, because once again, we got to play games this week, and a week in which you get to play games is a good week. So as a result, why don't we talk about them? Let's talk about some games, Mark. Why don't we talk about games this week, Walker? We're not going to talk about our top 10 games of 2019 this week. We will, however, talk about it next week. But what we are going to talk about are some other fantastic games. Well, maybe some games will be on our list. Who knows? Ooh, that's a great way to keep interest. I know. A little bit of a teaser there. Teaser there. But these... Just imagine these games tied up on a railroad track, and we are the people twist, twirling our mustaches as the train approaches. That's right. Just, it blows me away, Mark. All these games coming out, they all have something new. They all pique my interest. Well, not all of them. Not all of them, but I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) They don't all have something new. I suspect there's one game we'll talk about. What I'm just saying is I love this hobby is what I'm trying to get to. I love playing games. I love finding new ways to combine these things together. I love talking about them. I love sharing our experiences with you guys out there. Let's get on with it. This is a podcast about board games. Do you know what I love, Walker? What do you love, Mark? I love you, Walker. Why, thank you, Mark. I love you, too. We're going to talk about the game we reviewed last year, which is BattleCon. We're going to talk about games we played this week. We're going to talk about news and why it doesn't matter. And then we have a fantastic topic this week, which is cultural expectations. When the culture of a gaming group or an online community is different than what you expected. Mark, last year, we reviewed a game called BattleCon. Yes, our Eurus, the as yet unnamed retrospective intro segment is BattleCon. I can say with great certainty that you have not played it since we reviewed it. Uh, yeah, I just have one word. It was just like, nope. Yeah, <laughs> like, here's as in everything. About- <laughs> here's the thing. I can say with great sadness in my heart 
that I have not played it since we reviewed it either, which is a tragedy. So there's a general level of sadness, misery, and despair that one has simply by knowing Michael Walker. And then there's the additional level of sadness, misery, and despair one has when Michael Walker is one of your primary gaming partners. And if there's a two-player game that he doesn't like... Well, then you're probably not going to get many of a chance to play it. Now, in his defense, in his limited defense, BattleCon is difficult to introduce to people, and that is one of the things we talked about in the review. It's a little bit daunting. It's not as accessible as a lot of the other two-player card battling games. And this is a genre that I love, but is very crowded. I was just writing down off the top of my head other games that I've been playing instead of BattleCon. These are all worthy games, some of them even excellent. Blue Moon, Sacker Arms, Airland and Sea... And these games are all more accessible than BattleCon is. Now, I think BattleCon brings something new to the table. I'm never going to get rid of it in my collection. I'm looking forward to the new content, and I really should devote more of an effort to introducing new people to it. But it does require an effort because of how superficially daunting it is in many ways. And that's even on top of the other, all the other two-player game, two-player-only games like Battle or Second Edition or Robin Bones or Warhammer Underworlds or Aristea or Mythic Battles. You know, it, it's just two-player-only games. We've commented before. It's a tough niche. It's very crowded. We don't have a lot of two-player-only time. I wish I had more, and as a result, I haven't played much BattleCon, but I love the system, and I love what they're doing with it. I did go back. I, st- I listened to a little bit of the podcast we did about it, how the art was. It reminded me of how it worked and how, you know, playing the two different cards together, like not only creating different combos with the characters, but creating different combos with the two cards you placed. It, it's just... I remember it not being a terrible system, but <laughs> but like you said, it's just time is limited. I've actually been playing more 2D fighters of late on on consoles and, and video games, uh, more Guilty Gear, some Blaze Blue, and stuff like that. And it's been it's been reminding me of how excellently BattleCon captures a lot of those combinatoric subsystem elements that one finds in these other games. Anyhow, I still have a lot of enthusiasm for BattleCon, but I think, to be entirely fair and transparent, the fact that I haven't played it in a year, I think, is a bit of an indictment. All right, and that's BattleCon from... Level 99 Games. Designed by... Brad D. Talton. Thank you. And now on to the games we played this week. Both Mark and I got to get a couple of games of Flotilla in. It's a game by WizKids that's designed by J.B. Howell and Michael... Mahilsik is... Let's go with Mahilsik. All right, so Flotilla is a post-apocalyptic game where uh, the U.S. were doing these, uh, these, these bomb tests, and it turned out much deadlier than they expected. It's a science fiction premise whereby the United States government decided to detonate atomic weapons in the Bikini Atoll, which is obviously a far-fetched premise because that's obviously of sufficient risk and foolhardiness that no government would ever consent to do that. So obviously all the ice caps melted, the government crashed, all of these, everything, you know, rose to the top and these little communities formed, you know, water top and this guild these different guilds came together and started running this community. And now divers go out and they try to bring up old wreckage and try to form new parts of this community. And this is the game that it's based around. And I had to make up almost all of that secondary part because none of it is in the actual rule book. We were genuinely angry, actually. About halfway through the, the first time we were playing, I'm like, so what's the flavor text behind any of this? And you said, nothing. I said, no, you're making this up. And sure enough, there's a couple paragraphs about the tests on the Bikini Atoll. And then, you know, the, the alternate history part is where they, they turned out worse than they did. And, and the world collapsed. But nothing else besides that. What actually is happening in the game, you're all left to infer from these weird bits of nonsense. It's such a wasted opportunity. It's yeah, bizarre. That's why, it's ang- that's why I'm angry, right? It's just a wasted opportunity. Yes. There's, there could have been such, like, 
cool things. And like, even in just in the rules description, say you're doing this because, you know, you're doing, you know, you're bringing up wreckage and you're forming it on or there's guilds because or a little bit of information on the guilds maybe a little bit of visual continuity between the guilds for example just just nothing you're left with very little to to hang your hat around other than the world's over so it's a very interesting sort of deck building tile laying game i wouldn't say it's deck building it's more like how concordia does it whereby you have a hand of action cards and you can add to that it's yes arguably you have a deck and you're building the deck but it's it's not it's very much not like Dominion or or anything like that. True, yeah, you're not you're not blowing through your hand every turn. You're just playing one card. So I guess you know you're not playing enough cards to make it called an official deck builder. And then I'm not sure if we talked about this already, but in lots of Euro games, lots of Euro engine builders, the first part of the game you're building this huge engine, and then usually the second part of the game you pump that engine for victory points. So in Flotilla, there's an actual mechanism for this switchover. You actually flip over, you know, your player board, and you draw your tiles back in, and then you're actually starting to build your Flotilla onto the main part of the board. I actually think you're underselling Flotilla. Now, I think it's fair to say that you enjoyed it more than I did. I thought it was pretty good. You seem to be very enthusiastic about the design. Is that correct? I enjoyed it very much. Yes. The interesting part to me is not so much that the switch over to the second phase of the game, which, as you say, is optional and different people can do it at different times. It's not so much that you're transitioning now to the victory point engine generating of it. That's very much how you play, which is just a characterization of how you play. I tend to focus on getting more points during the first half of the game. I feel like I am, I'm not necessarily building an engine, but there are lots of scoring opportunities during the first half. What I find most interesting, and it's a shame that we're talking about a two and a half hour to three hour game where there's so little of this, is when some players are in phase two and other players are in phase one. Because then what you have are interesting market pressures. You have interesting point competition in a variety of ways. You have a variety of weird parasitic relationships and you have that tension of trying to figure out am I leaving points on the table by having transitioned too quickly or by uh, staying in the, the, the phase that I am and that part is delicious I really really liked it the problem is that occupies about 10 to 20 percent of the game generously true. and it was way more prevalent in our first game than it was in the second game yes that is true in the first game we played two people went transitioned to the second phase relatively quickly and I stayed in the last phase for a very in the first phase for a very long time and I profited enormously as a result but it was fun watching that influence the market I hope it was fun for you guys 100%, as well yeah. oh yeah watching because that uh, was it the sonar track like it never moved until you know we went into the second phase and then suddenly it started going up and and that that sort of started hitting for you and, and it was very interesting it was and as I say, I, I wish that occupied more of the game. I wish the game focused a little bit more on that. It's one of the reasons why I think you commented while playing, why is this a minimum three players? I think that's why, honestly, because you need to have that interaction between different people and the tension to, to switch over. If only a two or one player game, I don't think you'd have that. Basically, to, to sum up very, very simply, what's going on in the different phases, phase one is kind of like a pick up and deliver game, whereby money is very tight and you're trying to use your money to maybe build a little bit of infrastructure and try to buy uh, a fair number of points because you effectively just buy points with money in this game. And in the second phase of Flotilla, what you're now doing is you are laying tiles and you're using all these resources and money suddenly just falls into your hand like you wouldn't believe. And the economic pressures are radically different. In the first phase of the game, you're mostly selling goods to make money. In the second phase of the uh, game, you're mostly buying goods so you can lay out these tiles because they're very resource intensive. Anyway, that switchover is interesting. 
And most of the game actually just revolves around laying out tiles to score points, or, as I say, buying these victory point achievements, which will benefit, you know, standard Eurogame stuff, X of this tile, Y of this tile, these kinds of sets, and so forth. There's a, a fair bit going on, and it's a little bit scattered, uh, and I'm not 100% sure that the second phase is as interesting as the first, because there's this notion, uh, the, the points start to spiral out of control, in, in a way that, that that's good for whoever's doing it, but if you show up and somebody's already made a certain color of tile very, very valuable, I'm not sure there's a whole lot of strategic leeway for you to try to go off on your own. Say I show up in the second phase, and Walker, either by happenstance or by clever play or some combination of the two, has made blue tiles worth of large number of points and say I'm not sitting on any blue tiles. I don't know that it makes any sense for me to try to go into the Herculean effort of alone trying to make red or yellow or green tiles worthwhile, or if I'm better off just trying to get the scraps that falls off of Walker's table. Very much like my life. So I like Flotilla. I enjoyed it. I think it just barely merits its length, which is high praise for a, you know, two and a half hour to three hour Euro because it's very, very long, even with three players. I wouldn't want to try this with five. Good Lord. That would be very long, I think. So I, I think maybe with four, probably not with five. I'd play it again. It was it was nice. The interaction, I don't think there's very much. It's just one of these games where you're trying to just beat people to certain steps. Like you, ex- the exact point you said, you know, I had a bunch of blue t- or someone could have a bunch of blue tiles. Blue tiles could be worth a lot. Guess what? There's nothing you can do to that person to stop them. As you were talking, I, I, it has a very Fuchig magnet feel to it i.e. because it has the same victory point pool that once it's gone, uh, the game will end and then there's a reserve that you're going to draw from afterwards. The fact that, uh, the, like you said, the victory points go ridiculously out of control near the end of the game. You're like heavily collecting them. You know what I mean? Like once you've got your engine built, you know, they start disappearing very quickly. But unlike uh, Food Chain Magnet, you can you can really uh, punish someone quickly and stop them. In Flotilla, you cannot do that. I don't know if I'd compare them because in Food Chain Magnet, you have that second reserve of points and that's what determines the end game. And in Flotilla, it's just once a certain number of points have been claimed, the end game begins. That's a relatively common Eurogame element. It doesn't have that second reserve and there's nothing else that's in common. But I will say this. In comparison, I agree with you that the player interaction is not as substantive as I'd like. But in comparison with Concordia, because the action selection mechanism is more or less the same as in Concordia, you have these cards that do things and you can acquire other cards. Number one, the new cards are interesting. In Concordia, the new cards are not really interesting. They're just very subtle variations of the cards you start with. So it's mostly just scoring opportunities. And number two, they did try to improve the player interaction by virtue of how the cards work. A lot of the cards say, if you play this when one of your opponents has just played another type of card, this other interesting thing happens. And that means that a number of times if you have those cards... Your choices are seriously influenced by what other actions people are doing, which is something at least. And it is a bit of a bear to teach. There is not very much interact. You know, the game, it just seems to be all over the place. It doesn't hang together. It very does well. not hang together well. There's like rondelles over here, rondelles over there, and they don't interact. And it's just a whole bunch of stuff going on everywhere. So it's very hard to sort of tie it all together. Whereas when you're trying to learn the game, you, it doesn't like flow all into you know each other like like other games do. Anyway. It's true. That is Flotilla by WizKids. We also got to play Marvel Champions the card game. I had tried it myself before, and Walker had expressed some interest in it. So, uh, Walker, what did you think of Marvel Champions the card game? Uh, It is a card game, Mark. Yes. I remember you sent me a message shortly after reading the rules. Your mind was blown. Yes. By the revolutionary aspect of Marvel Champions the card game, whereby you play a card and it does what it says it does. 
I I was surprised at this day and age that that I I'm not so much surprised at Fancy Flight anymore. <laughs> being disappointed by them is just something you know par for the course lately. And I'm I'm sorry that if you enjoy Marvel Champions. You know, it has been said that we are awfully harsh on games, and then other people say, you know, stop playing games, grow up, and what I say to that latter part is, mom, get out of my room, it's none of your business. Anyway, Marvel Champions, that's what it is. It is a a great card game if you really enjoy the Marvel Universe, but don't like playing games, then this is the game for you. No, but being serious, it, that that is what it is. You draw your hand of cards. You play. You play the cards. They do what they say, and that is is pretty well it. There's a little bit of hand there. I, I I think you're honestly. I think you're being a little bit harsh, even though I'm not a huge fan of it either. I will say this. This is my first experience with deck construction. We were playing with three, so I had to construct my own deck. I did not find the construction aspect particularly interesting, and having constructed a deck and we lost, I wasn't particularly inclined to then go back and tweak the deck so I so we could we could overcome that loss. To be honest, it's a relatively constrained set of options for how you construct things in the base game. I don't know if it'd be improved by throwing money at the problem. I'm not particularly inclined to find out. And there is, for what it's worth, a lively discussion in our guild about why and whether one would be inclined to engage in co-op or solo deck construction games, both for tweaking your own deck and tweaking the enemy AI. So, I, I don't see the negative where people get the negative on Sentinels the Multiverse. I just, I think I'm just biased. I just enjoy how how different all the villains are in Sentinels the Multiverse. How all the heroes are different, and how you can and get these really interesting combos when you pair some of them together. And none of that is in, in Marvel champions whatsoever. For what it's worth, I agree. And that is Marvel champions. I, I want to talk about it more because I, I really don't think either of us are going to play it again, nor, nor will we talk about it again, but I think there's nothing much else to talk about. <laughs> so I get to play some more. It's a wonderful world. This is the drafting game that we tried not too long ago. It's a Wonderful World has this shockingly simple rule set that leads to surprisingly difficult trade-offs about how to build your economy. And this is because every time you draft a card, you can either burn it to get a resource or try to build it. And when production happens, there are these competition bonuses for production, encouraging player interaction. And it proceeds in stages. So you can use the production of gray cubes to finish off this one building, and that building produces black cubes, which is produced next, and so on and so forth. And I, it's one of those games that really makes me feel stupid in a good way. I look at this, it, again, a very, very simple rule set, and you look at these cards and you figure, okay, I think I've got a handle on it this time. I know how to figure out my production problem. And then I just get tanked. And suddenly I have all these cubes that I don't know what to do with and the cubes that I need are nowhere to be found. And I think that this is an indication, now maybe I'm just being egotistical here, I think this is an indication that there's something to the system and there's uh, stuff to explore. And I've been very interested in exploring it. I played it two-player and I also played it solo. And I have to say, for a very long time, we have been bemoaning the absence of quality drafting games. We both like Blood Rage, but the blood, the drafting isn't the key, the key draw for us. And I think It's a Wonderful World is finally the game we've been looking for that is more substantive than Fairy Tale, but not three hours long and entirely absent of, of, of serious strategic depth like any other terraforming games we may or may not wish to speak of. It's really solid. It's got a huge deck, but you never feel like you're being completely hosed by what uh, proportion of the 
cards come out. It doesn't overstay its welcome. It, it grows at a very, very nice clip by the fourth round. You're churning out large numbers of cubes, but it's still a very manageable economy. I've been very impressed by It's a Wonderful World, and I'm looking forward to playing it yet more. Yeah, I, I can't add, I haven't had a chance to play it a second time, but it usually takes one or two games, you know, to finally get a grasp on what the game is all about. And the, just the fact that just after one plane, you can sort of see that there is more there that you want to... Even after one round, I that's think. That's what I mean. And so I'm just, I'm very much looking forward to trying it again. And that is, it's a wonderful world. Who puts that out? Uh, this is, well, it's been published by a number of groups, but it was initially published by La Boite de Jeu. I got to play a game called Menace Among Us by Smirk and Dagger Games, designed by Jeff Gum. So I think this... Here it comes. This is what I think. This is what might encapsulate negotiating and and hidden personality games. No, what's the what's the hidden personality is very much how I would describe you. There you go. So here's what happened, Mark. I was there. You were there. But I, I was there, but I, so, I'd be so more than happy this, to hear so, the story. So, Walker. listeners, this is what this is what's happening. This, this is, is gonna what, be like Rashomon, isn't it? Where you tell this crazy story, and I'm like, I I I don't know where you're getting this. I'm just saying there there was. Some there was a there was a person who, because of a game effect, couldn't even talk. And to his to his to his benefit, he didn't talk. But he was still, even after a bad play, not talking, convinced the entire table to eliminate another person from the game. Yes. Yes. How is this a problem? I I that's that's just that's fantastic. Are, you're just you're just bitter because we found you out. What happened was this individual. So you get injuries. I've talked about the menace among us before. When you get injured, there's the variety of a possible possible number of effects that happen to you. And one of them, which is hilarious, is crushed windpipe. And if you have a crushed windpipe, you're not allowed to speak. And this individual was able to gesture. So as to explain why he had done what he had done, and we deduced from this that Walker could could not be trusted. And so we sent him to the brig. And it turns out he was a bad guy, and Walker's just bitter that we found him out. Now, it's also worth noting that we played twice in succession, and the first game was what I would say highlighted the Menace Among Us fragility. It's not the most robust game, because sometimes in social deduction games, it's all about when, when the bad guys have a moment to really exert their force without being too overt about it. And sometimes this is random, and sometimes it's a function of timing, and sometimes it's really, really hard to identify. And in the first game, for whatever reason, and I'm not going to criticize the play, the bad guys never really made their move. It was well, just... Well, they tried to make their move. They, I thought they picked a really great time where the one person couldn't talk and made a terrible play, and that you'd think that would be a great time to make your move, but apparently it is not. You didn't say a word. Sure, it, I did. I said, oh my God. I'm saying, if as you soon sh- as he turned up the card backstab, I said, gee, I'm sorry I backstabbed you. <laughs> and so, and, no, and no, 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 no. What I'm saying is, there were two bad guys at the table, and neither of you made a serious case as to why someone else was untrustworthy as opposed to one of you. And this is not to your strength. You're not inclined to be that kind of gamer for whatever reason, and I respect that. I will, however, point out that the second game we played was vastly better. 
and it showed the, the system more to its strengths. It was a question of cut and thrust, and even after the bad guys, one of the bad guys was identified, he was able to draw attention away from his colleague, and he was able to make life miserable even after he'd been brigged. He did very, very clever card plays. Now, again, granted, it's a relatively fragile game. You need to have the right draws and the right opportunity to do so, but we made some misplays that played into his hands. And all told, I think both sessions were at least good, and the second session was very good. You just seem to have this bias. This has happened a number of times, actually, in social deduction games, where you get found out and you blame the system for being degenerate because there was nothing you could do about it. It's all the same problem isn't the, all these different games, Walker. The same problem isn't in the genre itself. The problem is you, sir. Sure. Let's go with that. Anyway, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not shocked that you did not enjoy The Menace Among Us. However, no, I will point out. I never out, said I didn't enjoy it at all. <laughs> All right. Did you enjoy The Menace of My No. Okay. Well, there you go. <laughs> Once again, I saw you refuse to engage with a broad social meta, and that's your bag. You just don't like those kinds of games. I maintain that The Menace Among Us, for its duration, for its complexity, for the way it transmits its theme, for the way that it allows opportunity for some interesting play, both by the good guys and the bad guys, is a very, very worthy entrant in a genre that I quite enjoy. I don't understand what the difference is, though. When we play, you know, Deception Hong Kong, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm more than able to you know, engage and and interact. Uh, Unless and until someone makes a credible threat against you, then you clam up and complain bitterly when you're found out. I will grant you, though, that in Deception Hong Kong, you do engage far more than a lot of other games. When it comes to things like Secret Hitler, when it things come like the Resistance, the Menace Among Us, you just or or even Sidereal Confluence or some other trading games, you just sit at the edge of the table, arms folded, not engaging with anyone, and then just complain at the end of the game that you had no agency. I guess that's just me, Mark. I played A Feast for Odin the Norwegians. It was a great time, sprawling components all over the place. It was very much the same that Feast for Odin always is. So as a brief recap, great worker placement game, next to zero player interaction. You never engage with the other player except to remind them what stage of the game you're in. But you get to play with all your lovely little boards, and you get to settle Tierra del Fuego, and you get to hunt whales, and you get to go rob the English of their crown and do all these other things. And I'm not saying this as it being a tremendously thematically engaging experience, because, you know, thematically speaking, it's a little bit better than your average Euro, but by no means earth-shattering. It's just the variety of things you get to do in terms of being able to acquire more stuff. It's, it's great for the acquisitive. He's got a whole book. It's like a 30-page book for theme, so we can't really fault him there. Well, it's well-researched. It doesn't necessarily communicate it, though. At the end of the day, I know that it's a blue tile and that it's shaped a certain way. I don't really care what's printed on it. I don't think I've ever opened that book, so... (laughs) I've read a couple of the different entries. I do like his entry for beans, where he acknowledges that the Vikings didn't eat beans, but he just really likes beans. Look, if you design Bonanza, you get to put beans in whatever game you want. That's just up to you. So you do you, Ua Rosenberg. I had a great time with A Feast for Odin. It was very much the same system we know and love. A fabulous, fabulous sort of not quite best of worker placement game, but definitely good for variety. I had a great time, and the Norwegians is a great expansion. I'm looking forward to seeing what the Danes offers. Played a game called God Tier. I would like to say that that I played it only in a loose sense. God Tier is a two-player-only skirmish-type thing, and as you know, I have endless patience for such games. The problem is, though that generally speaking in the two-player skirmish-type arena, especially in the board game context, starter sets, we've been spoiled because they're actually starter sets. If you look at even something like Warhammer Underworlds, you buy a starter deck, a starter box, and you have everything you need for two people to play. 
God tier, you buy a starter box and you have one third of what you need to play. Because really, in order to play each faction, each side needs three different faction sets. And a starter box comes with one faction set. And so they say that you can try a sort of tutorial with one faction each. Or you can give them many, many, many more dollars and get the quote-unquote real game. This is why I passed up on the Kickstarter, and this is why I should have known better than to take up the opportunity to play this when it was offered to me, because I can tell you with one faction each, there's not a whole lot there. It's pretty much just a, a relatively static slog. There are some potentially interesting ideas, but honestly, I am not as a player in a position to comment on them because I don't know if they become manifest in a full three-faction versus three-faction game. I can tell you that in a one-faction versus one-faction game, not a whole lot happened and it wasn't particularly interesting. And I, I, for one, was almost outraged when I discovered that the starter set wasn't really a starter set. I didn't know that we pulled this kind of crap anymore. But sure enough, if you want to have a you know full faction set of God tier, you need more than what's in the starter. And if you want to play with two players, a starter will give you a third of what you need. So that was God tier. I can't really say I have much to say about it other than I haven't really played God tier. Finally, I got to play Core Space. Core Space has been recommended to me by a number of people, including Charlie Thiel. Charlie Thiel has been singing its praises for quite some time. Core Space is, uh, unlike God Tier, actually an entire game in a box, despite the fact that it was done by Battle Systems, which is a company that does tabletop miniatures games, primarily Terrain. And this is a sci-fi campaign-based uh, thing where you are traders navigating a sort of post-civil breakdown area of space where shipping lanes have, have boiled down and you're scavenging and you're trying to keep your ship running and you show up on space stations and then these evil aliens show up uh, that are bio that are harvesting biomass and they're these weird robots. Anyhow, I was a little bit skeptical of it because, again, I'm tired of, of campaign games and I didn't know the, the extent to which this was actually a complete game in a box. But contrary to God tier, it is a complete game in a box. There is beautiful terrain in the base game of Core Space that will completely occupy the 2x2 two two gaming neoprene map that is included in the base game box. And so you have a lovely table that requires rather considerable setup, figure about 20 to 30 minutes, especially your first couple of times, and a variety of different scenario types that tell you exactly where to put all the different different things, including adorable little bits like little ta little chairs, tiny little cardboard chairs that you get to put next to tiny little cardboard tables. It's nice. lovely. It's like a little dollhouse where you go to shoot things. It's it's marvelous. And I was also worried that in the start of the campaign, interesting things weren't going to happen because you start with just two crew members with crappy equipment. But no, it was it was it was really nice. You go and you scavenge for stuff and you try not to attract the attention of the aliens and you try not to attack, attract the negative attention of any of the civilians that happen to be on the base. Again, all of which is represented in the, the base game. You can get more crews, you can get more antagonists if you want. But as a, as a core product, no pun intended, it was really quite impressive. Now, am I going to pursue the campaign? Actually, maybe a little bit because the person I played with was very enthusiastic. He quite liked the system and he liked how it worked. As a sort of hybrid of board gaming and tabletop gaming, I think this is vastly more successful than Warcry. If you're into science fiction at all, I think Core Space is the product to go for. It was cheaper, it had more terrain, the terrain was substantive, the different special abilities were really good, the character differentiation was neat, the equipment system is neat, the paperwork is minimal because of how the beautiful little trays work. Everyone has their equipment in a plastic tray, you just pull it out, that's the character. I was really impressed. Core Space had a lot going for it in a genre that I thought I was sick to done with, and honestly, it was sufficiently clever that I will probably be visiting it again, and that was Core Space. Cool. That Those are all the games we played this week. Now, on to the news and why it doesn't matter. 
I was looking at some of the releases coming out of Japan, and there's this very interesting dexterity game, Mark. Let me explain this to you. It is called Fine Job Labyrinth. And so you put out this sheet of paper that has these dungeon walls and that, you know, walls off a big square of the table. And I think you take turns putting out these domino type things as, as sort of like walls. And then what you need to do is, tr as long as you keep a finger on the table, you have to, you know, deke out all these dominoes and collect gems and sort of do like a little dungeon crawl with your hand. It seems like it's going to be kind of interesting. I'm looking forward to trying it anyway. I'm looking forward to it too. I love the title. I love that it just seems so enthusiastic and supportive, which is not something that I'm ever familiar with in my personal or professional life, comma, Walker. And it reminds me a little bit of another dexterity game that I really, really like called Grimp, which is, it's called Climb in English. And it, it similarly is based on, you know, putting your, your stubby little sausage fingers, in, in my case, on the table and using your, literally your manual dexterity to sort of crawl across a, in this case, nominally a climbing pattern. And having seen videos of how Fine Job Labyrinth works, it looks to be the same. Um, and however, though... Uh, in climb, at least, there was a, a bit of a compensating advantage. If you had massive fingers, you at least had the benefit of reach. I desperately don't. I don't see how you and I. No. Are, I don't. This I don't mean to like you a, in with me. Because, will be, maybe we'll be the monsters of this particular dungeon. We'll be like the minotaurs bullying through. Yeah. No, I don't know. Or we might have to have weight classes. Because <laughs> 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 yeah, but it, it looks intriguing. I, I, I'm very interested to give it a try. And that's by Matsuo and Matsuo Games. So hot on the heels of Kemet 1.5, where Matago redid the rules and tweaked it in a variety of ways to one of our favorite dudes on the map games, Kemet, and changing some of the references here and there, they have announced that they're going to make a fully new version called Kemet Blood and Sand. This is not going to be backwards compatible with base Kemet. They're going to rethink everything they say and, and, and redo it from the ground up or the sand up, as, as case may be. Jokes like this are why I'm a professional walker. That was just off the top I, of my head. I know. That was like improv gone like to the I'm just, 12th I'm just degree. riffing just, on all this stuff right amazing. here. This is, I, yeah. I can't, yeah. You're thank, welcome, audience. I'm just saying, thank God we're recording this, right? Like, If this were lost to posterity, I, I, I don't know what I could do with myself. I'd cry myself to sleep, I'm sure. So, Comet Blood and Sand, it's anticipated to be released by Matigo sometime later in 2020. Matigo always does a beautiful production. I'm very much looking forward to seeing what they do with it. I'm, I'm torn. You were torn. I'm torn. I don't. I, I just have they announced any way to bring out the the rule book for normal commit? Like the what do you new, mean, bring out the rule? Like book? the new rule book, the updated rule book. Is the one point five? Yeah. Is it yeah, just downloadable yeah. only? It's, or? it's it, it. Yeah, downloadable only. But you see that we have these technologies now. You familiar with three D printers? No. Okay. Well, three D printers allow you to make physical objects in real space, but there's a special three D printer light called a two D printer that will print out documents for you. That's madness. I know. But I wanted something cooler in a new expansion with a professionally printed book and everything. Let, let, let me get this straight. What you were looking for... No, seriously. What you want is a properly printed, properly staple-bound rule yeah. book for 1.5. Exactly. I, that has all the expansions in it, and so it's one book. Oh. So we already know what you know the box looks like when you open it. There's already two expansions, plus all the errata, plus everything else. You well, know, when you, here, but here's the thing with respect to Comet, though. I think the solid consensus is now, and, and and normally when there's a second edition, normally when I'm torn with a second edition, this was very much true with Eclipse, I'm wondering, well, it's not going to support all the expansion material right out the gate. Why would I want to downgrade? But when it comes to Comet, 
the overwhelming majority of expansion material is ignored anyway. Most people don't like to play with Tassati. They play with the black tiles. Sometimes they alter, they, they do the bidding for turn order, but apparently Blood and Sand is going to take turn order very seriously, so they're going to try to do something with that. And the Seth or Set module was so weird, we haven't gone back to it. So I'm perfectly happy to downgrade and go back. Now, will I rebuy the same game again? I don't know. I'm going to wait for the rulebook, but I'm definitely very curious to see what they're going to do about it. I hope it's going to be great, because Kemet is great. Speaking of great games, Teotihuacan was a great game. The same designers are going to be bringing out another game. Hey, I'm going to try to pronounce this, Mark. It's going to be fantastic. Yeah, good luck. Better you than me. Tiahenhu, Obelisk of the Sun. It is by David Tutse and Daniel Tashini. It's going to be put out by Board and Dice. And all of their games so far have been great. So I'm looking forward to it. This is going to be another Egyptian-themed game. Egyptian-themed games appear to be having a little bit of renaissance. I remember 20 years ago, every other game was about ancient Egypt. And that was that was the, the joke was that the paradigmatic Euro game was about auctioning trains in ancient Egypt, leading to the joke game Cleopatra's Caboose, which then actually became a real game where you auction trains in ancient Egypt. But it, it seems to be having a little bit of a comeback. And there you go. That is the news that we found this week, and that is why it does not matter. Now, on to the topic of the week. Are you ready? I hope so. Cultural expectations. When the culture of a gaming group and or online community is different than what you expected. So I thought that in this topic we were going to be determining and ranking what the best cultures were. So I have a lot of eugenics information that I'd love to share with you. That's fantastic. I'm sure. Let me just go upstairs. You go ahead and start without me. (laughs) Just tap twice on the floor when you're done. (laughs) This is as as we usually do things. We propose topics to each other and that is it. We do not talk about you know, what we're going to talk about. I personally find talking to you very unpleasant and not very productive. Exactly. This is why, and this is why I, when I talk to you, I turn my hearing aids down. Well, I'd like to start with an anecdote. It called to mind a number of very seminal experiences that I've had gaming. One of them in particular, this happened about 10 years ago. This was shortly after the release of Dominion. And I was playing Dominion with some French Canadians in Montreal. And part of it was that I had already been introduced to these people by uh, my friend who actually founded the uh, pub Randolph in Montreal, one of the, the big uh, gaming pub, uh, pubs. They have a couple, a few locations now. Uh, this is before uh, Randolph was opened. And he introduced me as, uh, you know, this is a, we're seeing grand joie. And I, I, I really didn't like that. He, he introduced me as some sort of big player, some great game player. And I, ugh. as I've commented before, I'm not very competitive. I don't have a very competitive outlook. I didn't, I didn't appreciate being introduced to people in that way. But unfortunately, I, I kind of understood now why there was a bit of a a, a, a perception that I was I, I, I approached gaming in a different way. Not that I was necessarily better, because when I first purchased gold in Dominion, I, I bought a gold, and immediately all three other players around the table kind of reacted as though I'd, I'd been playing a, a dollar poker game and raised them by $10,000. They all were like, whoa, whoa, what's going on here? Whoa, I thought this was some sort of friendly game. And I'm like, yeah, we're playing Dominion and I just bought gold. I'm sorry, is gold soft banged or something? The perception was, and this, this I, I tried to reconstruct. I was paying attention to what they were saying. And this isn't a language fluency issue. This was just a, a, a cultural, different set of cultural expectations about, about this particular gameplay. Was that a friendly game 
is one where you're just faffing around and you're not trying to pe- play very efficiently. The perception was, and this is this is perhaps phrasing it a little bit too sharply, but the perception was that because I was accelerating the pace of the game by buying gold, that I was foreclosing their ability to just buy random action cards and see how they function and play around with the space. Now, this is before, quote-unquote, big money was established as a, as a sort of dominant, obvious early strategy. I wasn't, you know, deliberately rushing the game or oh, they, anything. That's when they were afraid that you were pushing the end game too quickly. I, I'm not... See, that's just it. I'm not 100% sure. Like, part of it was that I was buying... I bought a gold before they were able to. And I think part of, the, part of it was responding to that. But part of it also was that... I was perceived as buying a car purely because it was efficient, not just because I was just trying to find out what it what it was doing. And I this this was a solid indication that my, I had approached the game with a mindset, or at least I was approaching games generally with a mindset that was at odds with what was going on. And I immediately pumped the brakes and I just started doing random stuff just to see what happened. And that it became very clear in the course of just even a, even a game as simple and as friendly as Dominion that that's, that that was more what was expected at that table. And it's those kinds of disjuncts of expectation that I find quite striking. Now here, this was actually people from a different cultural background than me, but sometimes it's not even from a different cultural milieu. It's just different cultural standards generally of board gaming or of of specific group metas with that that kind of take on a cultural value. Sure. Well, while you were talking there, it sort of reminded me of a story. I didn't have many stories written down here, but this was one that happened. I was at the very beginning of my gaming thing. There was this historical wargaming society here in Kingston, and they had the whole deal where they, you know, elected their, you know, their president and they had, you know, meetings and they, you know, did an annual thing. So I, so I got onto the executive committee or whatever they called it. We, this is when Magic had first started coming out. And they're into their Napoleonics and their, their historical war gaming. And one, once in a while, there, a board game would come out, but not very often. But uh, the Magic players were encroaching a little bit. So at this meeting, there was a proposal made that there was to be no card games played anymore at the club. Now, they played it off as though they were talking about, like... uh Traditional, traditional cards, card right? Games. They, they said, okay, hearts, spades, yeah, hearts, poker. spades. We just want to, you know, we're not going to have any, you know, card games played at the club. And I, I, I immediately realized what they were trying to do, right? They were trying, you know, they were going to put into the agenda, into the rule book that there would be to be no card games played, i.e., pushing the magic players out. And so, you know, I made the amendments that, you know, that traditional bicycle deck card games, you know, like, you know, were not to be played because, you know, they, their 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 little you route, called their bluff. I called their bluff, and so like like we had just talked. Their they their their expectations were that they wanted to you know, remain this historical club and not not change with the times. They wanted to keep their their bubble the way it was and not allow any change. So so circumstances like that are exactly what I'm driving at, and I find fascinating. You know, certain sets of shared expectations informing what could be called a culture. And sometimes this is on a small level, like a gaming group, and sometimes this is on a macro level, like, you know, 10 million French-speaking Canadians in, in North America. But I don't know that it's... Ne- but again, coming... And, and I don't want to get too political about this. Possibly coming from a minority culture within North America. I wouldn't necessarily... And, and also still being, I think, a little bit more of a historical war gamer than you are now. 
I don't necessarily think that I would automatically side with the magic players over the war gamers. Like, I think it is within the realm of, re- it is reasonable, and this is getting back to the main topic now, for a group to establish what kind of group it wants to be. Now, you can do this in better and worse ways, and I wasn't there, and I don't know how pointed it was. But if if you founded an organization and you wanted to do certain kinds of things, I think it's reasonable to say we're exerting some degree of standards. For example, let me, let me just draw an analogy, and then I'll shut up for a moment. If I started spending half my time talking about Mustangs on the podcast, I think it would be reasonable for you to sit down and say, look, this isn't what we had in mind I know you're a member of the group, but that doesn't mean that you get to set all the terms of the group. So do you understand what I'm getting at? True, 100%. But I would agree with you that if space was limited or 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 it was somehow affecting their games, 100%. But the place that we had had more than enough room. There was enough separation. There was nozzle. It was in, it was It was not impeding them whatsoever. So I personally didn't see a problem with it. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah, so that, what I have here at the very beginning is that if, if there wasn't these conflicts or there wasn't these different bubbles, then I would be a very disappointed person because really this is what drives me and interests me most about being a human being. Specifically conflicts? Because you not, can have not you, specifically you conflicts. Can have disagree, you can have different standards. Yes, yes differences. differences. Okay, not, thank not, you. Not, not. I just had this image of you sitting in a corner during some sort of tense negotiation and the brawl breaks out and you start giggling. No. No, that would be I'm very anti anyway. I know people will have problems with with different expectations, but I mean like just wel- what I have here is welcome to Earth. You know, this is <laughs> this is what this is what it's all about, people. Well, I, I've been honestly quite surprised at because these differences are almost always things that I would never imagine. As I said, I've, I've gamed in about four major cities over the course of the past 10 years in some sort of serious way. And there's often one or two things that just completely floor me about standards or expectations. For example, I was once in an environment where it was considered unreasonable to expect a rules explanation to any game. Everything was scheduled, which I already have problems with. But again, these are just my cultural expectations. My cultural expectations is that when you run an open game night, especially in a store, that broadly speaking, anyone can show up and people are free to suggest things and what have you. And that if Everything is highly regimented and scheduled in advance, and there's no room for someone to just show up and say, hey, can I join in? It's like, well, no, because we scheduled this two weeks ago, and because everyone has seen the rules explanation or read the rule book, so you just get to sit in a corner and do nothing. And I find that somewhat exclusionary and unfortunate, and I, I anytime I want to play a game, I have... I. I'm ready to teach it, and I hope that there are spots available. But I've found that not to be a universal assumption. Oh, 100%. I'm just, I'm gonna, I, have, I have two anecdotes to that. I'm going to go, because you're talking about rules explainer. Sure. I have a part about that in here. And the fact that when people, like they play games at home with their family, they all sit together and they learn a game. And then they show up at a games night or at someone else's house. And and the, and I, I feel that the rules explainer sort of takes control, right? And it can feel overbearing, right? Because there used to be, you know, this being a communal thing. And then suddenly there's this one person talking at them and telling them what they have to do and sometimes it can feel bossy or overbearing and don't don't hang your head mark i am not talking about you specifically 
I'm just talking about. But you are talking about me. No. <laughs> well, you do explain the rules a lot, but I'm just saying, in in a lot of circumstances, people aren't used to that. Like maybe no, you're right. To, you're right. They're used to you know all working together to learn the rules as a family or as a group or whatever, and then suddenly this one person is like controlling the table, and sometimes that can be too much for people. You're entirely right. The 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 there's a a, a, a cultural standard that a lot of people have. Whereby we've talked about this before. You you have a game in shrink. You've got the new game. You bring it to game night. You break the shrink together. You punch the components together, and then you collectively go over the rule book and try to figure out how it's played. Now we've primarily viewed this as an act of lunacy because this this process will take hours, often literally hours. But you're entirely right, and and and, and I'm embarrassed to say I never even considered before that if you're of a more collaborative mindset. If you're of a more collaborative cultural background, and this can, again, either because of a broader culture or a personal standard or what have you, I'm using culture in the broadest possible sense here, that can make far more sense than having some former professor yell at you for 15 minutes straight about the turn structure and phase structure and how the game works. You're entirely right, and I'm ashamed to say that I hadn't considered it from that perspective. And for what it's worth, a lot of these standards, I find, differ a great deal with respect to historical war gamers, RPG gamers, minis gamers, and board gamers. Uh, we talked about this also in the context of house rules and variants, and there's a, a very different cultural expectation about how quick you are to resort to variants amongst different groups. War gamers, if they think something is ahistorical, will start marking up rule books before they play the game for the first time. RPG gamers will start marking things up before they play for the first time if they think that it's too clunky or doesn't work well. Uh, board gamers, on the other hand, tend to be much more loath to introduce variants, especially when they haven't played it before. And again, I, I don't know that there's a right or wrong way to do things. I mean, in the moment, I tend to think very strongly that my intuitions are best. But in the abstract, it's just a you know cultural standard of different groups of people. On the subject of marking things up, people treat their games a lot differently than other people. So, so you might, you know, some people might sleeve everything and and you know completely take care of their game and you know show like it complete respect, whereas other people, you know, just use it for fun. You know, this is. You know, it's just cardboard and stuff, whatever, you know what I mean? So those are two, also two different ways to look at things. Yeah, before I'd moved to Kingston, and again, this was the kind of thing that maybe it was just a regional thing, maybe I should have just been paying more attention. I had never been asked before by somebody helping me set up a game if it was okay to riffle shuffle cards. And this is something that that I encounter all the time here. Is it okay if I riffle shuffle these? I'd never been asked before before I moved here. It was just if I tell someone to shuffle a deck of cards, they're going to riffle shuffle it or they're going to use whatever shuffling method they find best. I think in some circumstances, people have had bad experiences with riffle shuffle, maybe bent cards or whatever. Maybe people, some people don't know how to riffle shuffle properly and therefore might destroy your game. And, and therefore the first couple of times that someone grabs your, you know, nice cards and, and bends them and starts riffle shuffling, you might get a little, you know, eye twitchy. Sure. But the kinds of people that are going to ask, presumably they're asking because they know how to riffle <laughs> shuffle properly. It's weird. So the people who don't ask are the dangerous ones and the people who do ask are fine. So we talked about, you know, certain groups play light games or just heavy games or party games. So they just expect that, you know, you're going to join right in and not want to play other games. Can I complain for a moment? You surely can. I'm sick to death of people who are very ostentatious about how they self-identify about the games they play. It's like, oh, we only play heavy games yeah, here. I, I was thinking about this the other day. If I, you only play heavy games, that's fine. But but for, 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 for crying out loud, I just... I've never seen, uh, uh, you know, people who only play later card games... Be like, oh, no, we don't waste our time with these dense train game nonsense things. But on the other hand, these, <laughs> a lot of self-identified heavy gamers just they, they – they, 
it all gets very, very self self-referential and self-congratulatory sometimes. I mean, I think it's evident from the title of our podcast that we don't take ourselves very seriously. No. And just the self-identification can sometimes get a little bit weird. I have a whole big title here. It's called How to Play and How to Act. So, like... <laughs> well, and we sort of already talked about this. Welcome where, to the recording segment. Walker tells you how to live. Well, with, you know, being a bad gamer or, you know, being a problem at the table or whatever. So, it's, sure. it's just more of the same. Like, if you're in a store or you're in a bar or you're in someone's home, there's all different sort of cultural expectations, right? Right. And when you're in someone's home, the culture gets to be whoever's home it is. They get to buy... Well, seriously, they, yeah. they get to determine... Within reason, of course, there are some things they can't insist on, but broadly speaking, they get to set things. Whereas I think when it comes to an open space, there's a certain kind of cultural assumption of openness that I think is probably for the best. Again, I'm very nervous when I start phrasing it in these terms about superior cultures and so forth, but it's about certain expectations. If it's going to be in a public space, I think you should be as flexible as you can in the context of things. Now, if every once in a while, You've made arrangements to play that four-hour game of 1846, and you're just going to have it scheduled in advance. That's fine. But I think that it can get to be a problem when you're always doing that. And if there's ever a situation where somebody walks in at the appointed time and there's just no room except for scheduled pre-advanced games, at that point, I think you're less running an open games night and you're more just running an elaborate, uh, an extended circle of friends event. I got my antidote back. So speaking about an, an anecdote, you anecd- I got my anecdote back. No, 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 you haven't been poisoned. Anecdote. There's no T in it except for at the end. <laughs> All right. So there's this, there's this, you know, common joke that goes around that because we have our local gaming group that we meet every Tuesday night down at the store, and how we sort of got introduced into this group was. We had played almost all games at my house, right? We I had like four different gaming nights, you know, theme night where we played like the same game over and over, where it'd be a campaign or something. Saturday nights, you know, free for all. Monday we did this. Anyway, so this is when Pathfinder the card game came out, right? I've heard legends of this. This is before I moved here, but I've heard stories. So Pathfinder the card game came out, and it's this campaign type style deck building type game. And we had heard that there's this new gaming group that now meets down on Tuesday nights. So we thought, I thought, I, I proposed to the group, I said, you know, we really don't have time for, you know, to move this stuff around and, and do get another gaming night somewhere else. There's no reason to go down to the store. We have all the games that we need. This was like, this is the first time there's been another gaming group since this historical one, you know, disappeared. But anyway, so I said, well, why don't we just move the venue? Why don't we just play this game down there so we can meet these people and sort of be part of it, but, you know, not have to give up, you know, our already busy schedule. And it did, like you say, seem very, uh, exclusionary, exclusionary, kind of insular, Yeah, insular, because, you know, we showed up with the game that we wanted to play with the people we wanted to play it with. And we sort of sat there and we played a game while, you know, people showed up with games and played whatever. So we sort of got this, you know, odd reputation. And it was just one of these (laughs) things where, it 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 was it, it it was what it was. I I didn't feel it was that way. It was like one of these things where it's like, well, we want to be, you know, we want to meet everybody and play, sure. but we have to get, you know, this is the time we have. Yeah, and and look, it, it's it's kind of a paradox, right? Because I'm criticizing this sort of pre-scheduled, pre-planned event for being antisocial, but clearly it's more social to be doing it in a public space and at least saying hi to people and being around and being seen than the alternative, which is just to play it in your home and never see them and never go out. So it's it, it's a weird kind of tension there, and I, I acknowledge that it's not entirely consistent. So back to how to act and where. So 
<laughs> Staying, like I said, I wasn't sure where this conversation was going to go. So, like, like was it going to be what do you do when it doesn't meet your expectations, or what are the different kind of 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 yeah? Cultures? What do you but do? Anyway, I don't have a good answer for that. Well, I'm saying make sure you stay positive the whole time. Just remember, it's supposed to be fun for everybody. And where I thought this was going to go was staying until the whole game is over. Don't give up. At least finish the game because you're with X number of more people. It could be their only chance maybe once a month or once a week. At the very end of this thing, I have respecting people's time. I say that over and over again. Mm -hmm. Just, you know, finish the game out, even though it's a little painful. It's only an hour of your time. If you're not having fun, maybe the other people at the table are. Just finish it for them. So I'd like to spend a little bit of time talking about online communities because I find the culture of different online communities fascinating. I was first introduced to Reddit through the board games Reddit. And before that, I'd only ever heard legends about Reddit. You know, the, the, the whispered murmurings of how it was a lawless wasteland ruled by cannibalistic biker gangs and such. But I'd also heard that each Reddit was individual and different, that each Reddit had kind of its own subculture attached to it. And I have to say that as far as online communities go, the board game subreddit is shockingly welcome and shockingly reasonable. Within the first couple of weeks of my paying a little bit of attention to it, I saw on the internet an exchange where someone made a claim. Somebody else replied and said, here's some data that Refre- that, that, refutes. that refutes or, or is, in, is in conflict with your claim. And then that same person said, oh, you're right. I hadn't thought about it that way. I guess my claim is wrong and you have changed my mind. And this happened on the internet walker. You're a liar. No, no. This this happened. No, this happened didn't. on the board game subreddit and I could not believe it. Honestly, I find the, the board game subreddit marvelously friendly. Uh, board Game Geek, on the other hand, uh, has become, it remains a useful tool. And a lot of the fora are wonderful. I, I, you know, I'm not just saying this because it's ours, but I find our guild great. The conversation I find very good, and I find everyone's very friendly and welcoming. But honestly, the level of hostility generally on Board Game Geek in the general fora has, I think, skyrocketed over the past few years. I don't know if this is just sort of, oh, kids these days pearl clutching or what have you. Maybe it was always this bad. But honestly, I find the the, the tension and the hostility there to have really been ratcheting up. And as a result, the the culture of moderation has increased a great deal. It's not uncommon now. I remember, uh, uh, I seem to remember, back in the early days of Board Game Geek, you would find, every time you found a deleted comment by a moderator, it was a rare and, and, and strange thing. And now it's not uncommon to find a thread where half the comments are being deleted. I don't know if this is because the hostility's gone up, whether the threshold for moderation has gone down, or both. But things have gotten... I, I spend a lot less time on Board Game Geek now, and a lot less time posting than I used to, largely because of, I think, what's a, a cultural shift. It's It's, it's weird. It is odd. Well, I haven't got anything about online because a lot of people talk about, you know, negativity online and stuff. And and I just don't, I, not that I don't see it, I just ignore it. <laughs> and, you know, because a lot of times, you know, we're on, on voice chat and games and they, you know, people say, you know, oh my God, do you see what they're saying, you know, in the chat? And it's like, no, I, I don't even, my eyes are never even drawn to it. I never see it. I don't read it. It's always negative and it's always... Well, that's just it. It's not always negative. That, that That's no. the surprising thing. Now, there, there's a lot of other, you know, board game Twitter is a thing. I don't really understand Twitter. We do it a little bit. There are a whole bunch of discords. I don't understand discord. Instagram, I don't know what that is. You know, there, there's a lot of other uh, subcultures out there uh, where board gaming is being discussed. They each have their own sort of cultural standards of, of discourse and so forth. I just don't know them or understand them because social media makes no sense to me. So that, that feeds into one uh, uh, thing I have here, which is language you know, offensive language or whatever, 
you know, you go into a place, they're used to using, you know, dropping F-bombs or swearing or whatever. So that's, you know, a different kind of culture. Yeah, I need to work on that. There's the drinking culture. You know, a lot of, I've seen a lot of other uh, people talk about, you know, drinking while they play. It's not something that, you know, I do or encourage. I just think it's it, it's detrimental to, I shouldn't say that. I just, I just don't feel they go hand in hand, in my opinion. Well, neither of us really drink, right? It's not, That's for, true. for a lot of people, it's a very strong part of their social interactions to engage in some social drinking. And it's not how I enjoy myself, but I'm not, I'm not going to judge anyone for, for wanting, uh, you know, their glass of, of beer with whatever 50 million modifying words to it, IPA, stout, double plus good, ultra mega fermented hoppiness or, or a glass of wine or what have you. I mean, it's just, it's not my bag, but. Then I have banter, which is sort of like language, but you know, when you have a certain banter with your friends and a new person comes in, we've talked about this before, you got to watch, you know, people might feel uncomfortable with the way it's going. There's pets when you're in someone's home, you know, how they interact with their pets, how, you know, they allow their pets to act. There's what subjects, what non-board gaming subjects to talk about Mm. while playing your game. Some are good, some are bad. There's another one that came up recently is personal space. Remember we talked about a certain game that where you actually physically touch people. So that's another big thing, uh, which is like feel the room, you know, see what the, you know, understand that people feel differently than you do and just know how to, you know, act. Playwright. (laughs) Walker says, behave yourself and here's how to act. I think you're good to point out that as much as we can throw up our hands and say different groups and different subgenres and different subgroups are going to have different cultural standards, there are some things that I think we can reasonably insist on or encourage so as to be maximally inviting and welcoming. Exactly. And you're always good at emphasizing those points. Thank you. And I need to stop yelling at people. You don't yell at people. Mark. I do. I do yell at people. Well, thank you very much for joining us for So Here Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justrolledadice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at the games you like. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236. And you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we'll get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.